based immigration. Clearly, you got to work with Democrats to make it law. Years of dreams of striking an immigration deal, nothing has worked. Americans are in a battle for the identity, soul, and future of our country. From building a wall to protecting civil rights to cutting taxes or Medicare for all, voters across the country are divided like never before. We have a critical presidential election coming up in 2020, and everyone should vote. But imagine having the opportunity to choose any leader in our nation's history to be your presidential candidate in 2020. Abraham Lincoln, FDR, Ronald Reagan, Hamilton, or Barack Obama. Who would you choose and why? Welcome to Big Shot, a podcast discussing today's issues while pitting the greatest political figures in American history against each other in a hypothetical race for president, and you decide the winner. Now, without further ado, it's my honor and privilege to turn it over to Charlie King. Thank you. Thank everybody for coming. I want to thank our guest, Anthony Scaramucci, for being with us today. Give him a round of applause one more time. And Tom Allen, our special co-host today. We're here at the Green Room again for our second live taping. Now, the last episode we had was entitled Divided We Stand as a Country. And uh, if you recall, we were talking about that in the polls, Republicans, 87% uh, of Republicans support Donald Trump and support what he is doing and how he's doing it. 75% like him as a person. Democrats, it's the exact opposite. Democrats can't stand Donald Trump as a person, can't stand his policies. Today we have Anthony Scaramucci here to help us sort of deconstruct the country, deconstruct the Republican Party, and to talk to us about alternatives, if there are any, both in the Republican Party in general, but also with our fantasy list of candidates, who he likes amongst our fantasy candidates that could be alternatives to Trump, and to make us understand better uh, why people support Donald Trump to begin with and why people may turn away from Donald Trump in the Republican Party. But before we do that, Anthony, you know, you've called yourself a mega elite, like a, an elite person on steroids, but you weren't always that kind of guy. So why don't you sort of let people know well, kind yeah, of where you well, came I, from, I was, where you started, where you started from. You, when I was saying that, it was actually self-criticism to call myself that, because the point I was making is I, I grew up in a, uh, you know, reasonably blue-collar community. Yeah. Some of my friends are here from Port Washington. My dad worked as a uh, construction, you know, he's a crane operator in the sand pits in the town that I grew up in. And so all of my family members of my age, my brother and I are the only two of like 37 cousins that actually went to college. And so, um, and, and there's, you know, I've got auto glass installers and clamors and deli operators, collision, you know, auto collision people in my family. Very few people have gone on to do what I've done. Again, I'm not saying it's self-importantly, I'm saying it because unfortunately for me, I detached myself from that group of people. And what ends up happening to you is that you get the collective biases of the people that you're with. So I went to Tufts and Harvard, then I went to Goldman Sachs, I started building hedge funds. And so then I started hanging out with quote unquote the mega elite. And so I started missing what was actually happening in the neighborhood that I grew up in. We went from aspirational working class families 30 or 40 years ago to economically desperational ones. 
And uh, I can remember going back to 2016 when I was working for Mr. Trump, we were on the plane and I was calculating what my dad's 1976 wages were, the, the local union that he worked in, what those wages were in 2016, 40 years later, and then adjusted for inflation, they were down about 26%. And so that very same family, I grew up on Webster Avenue in Port Washington, nice house, you know, we had air conditioning, macaroni, all the stuff that you would want. <laughs> it was a tight budget, but it was a middle-class life. I would never dishonor my dad by telling you I grew up in poor, I didn't. But when I ended up going up the spire of financial independence, I got to a zip code or a zone where I got detached from those people. And I would say, American politicians of the establishment, I think the indictment on both sides was that they left a vacuum of advocacy for blue collar people. Uh, whether you like President Trump or dislike him in this room, my observation during the campaign was he was tapping into an area of the country that felt disadvantaged and they felt left out of the system. And so, you know, if you want to think about how he won, he won by going through those states and aggressively campaigning. You know, Secretary Clinton, again, like her or dislike her, just being observational, she didn't go to the state of Wisconsin after the primary. And she, I think she went one time, I mean, you could fact check me, it was one or two times to Michigan, and some of us on the campaign were always like, why is she doing that? She must think that she has these places in the bag but you'd go into those states and there'd be one Trump-Pence sign after the next mm. on the lawns. And Michael Moore, the filmmaker who lives up in Michigan, was hey, he's gonna win Michigan. So I say that mega elite thing as a point of self-derision, actually. I, I would like to have thought about myself that I would have stayed grounded and saw that anxiety, but I missed it. Well, let me, let's, and, and, and Trump <clears throat> saw it, by the way. But let's start with you now. Do you feel like you are disconnected from like your roots now, you no. personally? Right. No, no, I, I definitely feel like the experience that I had and, you know, obviously the being blown from the White House and the humbling experience of that and actually working on that campaign and going to places like Youngstown, Ohio, Toledo, Ohio, Davenport, Iowa, I was like, whoa, he's talking to the people I grew up with. And these people feel very disadvantaged and we have to figure out a way to help those people. And I would just say, if you want to, if you want them to lose, if you want to beat them, you can't call these people deplorable. You can't call them white nationalists. You can't call them ethnocentric people. You have to, you have to figure out what they really want. They want a job, they want a good job, and they want aspiration for their kids. Now, do you think that the Republican, do you think that the Republican Party is in sync with the way that you look at it, or do you think that the Republican Party is disconnected from the blue collar worker. So listen, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say because I, mean, I am a Republican. I mean, I, I, don't, I guess I'm sort of not by their standards anymore. I mean, I gave them a ton of money to the GOP and they've got the National Committee woman, uh, Ronna McDaniel. She dropped her name Romney. I guess that was insulting to the president. So she's now Ronna McDaniel. Um, you know, they're, they're lighting me up even though I'm a registered Republican and I've been a Republican, lifelong Republican, but I think that uh, you're learning a lot about the Republican Party right now, particularly the elected leadership in the Republican Party is more focused on self-preservation and partisan politics than they are the system of the United States and frankly the rule of law in the United States. And so I don't, I, people here don't need a civics lesson, but what made the country so strong and such an amazing place 
is that we, we tried to build a system with all its flaws, the original sin of slavery and all the different flaws that we've had in our country. We tried to create a system that would protect us against autocracy and tyranny. And so the critical element of a republic-based system is to make sure that the laws are more powerful than the people and that nobody is above the law. And so now we have somebody testing that system. We have somebody is stepping above that system in a supra position, and he's recognizing that due to political expediency and political self-interest, there's a very large group of people that are willing to ignore the lawlessness and willing to ignore the behavior uh, to allow that to perpetrate it. So we have to stop that. And so I'm, you know, I'm still in the Republican Party, but I got to tell you, you know, they don't like me. Now, you've got four kids. I've five got, kids. You've got five kids. Yeah, I'm, I'm making them. Jeez. Keep making them. Keep making them. Well, the first question is, when are you going to stop? How <laughs> many kids you got, Charlie? Two that I admit to. Let's go get to work here. What is I'm going on? You got your in-laws in the front row. No, no more I'm kids. Like, your wife's <laughs> getting the cut off here. <clears throat> We're done. Did he have the vasectomy? I'm just uh, asking for like all of our friends here. Are you, are you, are you, no? That's right. No, okay. I'm, I'm, so you've got five I've kids. I've got five kids. Right? Yeah. I've got two. How many? Three. Three kids, right? So we've all had situations where our kids bring in relationships. You look at the kids come in with relationships or we have friends. And in those relationships, you say, what the hell do we, do, does our, do our kids see in that, that person or our friends see in that relationship, right? <laughs> then they finally break up with that person. Are you tying that to, to me and Trump? Is that what you're saying? That yeah, you're now that you've broken up with him, okay. we want to know what we all saw that at the time, right? So, but we want to know, like, you know, that was a torrid affair you guys had. So we want to know, what was it that you saw that okay. we didn't I think, see? I think it's a very good question, and I obviously write about it. You could look at the Washington Post editorial I, that I, did. I've but, written, yeah. and, I, and it's a very, very good question. But again, you, you know, here's what I would say. It's a very human admission, but here's <coughs> what I would say, that I'm the product of my upbringing. I'm the product of my environment, right? And so, um, you know, I took a pledge, among other people, that I was going to support the Republican nominee. Jeb Bush, who's a friend of mine, I was working for Jeb, he dropped out of the race. He said, well, you know, you're not living up to your pledge because Trump is not a Republican. But I said, well, he's going to get the Republican nomination. I'm going to go work for him. Then I started traveling with him and saw these pockets of discontent in the country. And frankly, I identified with that because, you know, I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for the other people in the room. But I think most of life is providential. You know, I didn't pick the family I was born into. I didn't pick the location of my birth. I didn't pick my gender. I didn't pick, you know, my intelligence. And so a lot of life is providential. And there I am. I'm, I'm born into a family where it was easier to make a blue-collar wage into a middle-class living. And so I was attracted to that, and I got drawn into it. And then I did something that maybe nobody in this room has ever done, but I can admit to a human weakness of doing something that I shouldn't have done. I started equivocating. I started saying, okay, I don't like this, but I like that. I don't like that, but I like this. And I started to take the scales out. And then there was a choice between a Democrat and a Republican. And as I said, I'm a lifelong Republican. Nothing against Secretary Clinton, everything against her personally, but I wanted more free market-based Republican policies. And so I started doing what 62.8 million people did, which was I moved the goalposts and the president uh, and we were, Tom and I were just talking about people that we know in common. The president is very good at getting people to move the goalposts. And so what he does is he tests everybody's loyalty by moving the goalposts. I'm inappropriate here. Are you going to ignore it? Yes. I'm inappropriate there. Are you going to ignore it? Yes. 
I'm inappropriate here, or are you going to ignore it? Yes. Look at what he did to Rudy. Look what he did to Michael Cohen. But for me, he got to a point where I was like, okay, this is really bad. This is not working. I can no longer uh, support this. I'm not going to disavow all of my personal integrity. I'm not going to disavow my life history. And so I can't support this anymore. And so I had to start speaking out about it. And so was you can it, blame like me. You can say, hey, man, you should have saw it. I saw it in 2015. You saw it in 1995. You want to say I missed it, and you want to be upset with me. Let me just finish this. I think this is important for everybody. I'm OK with that. You can be upset with me. But let me tell you something. we got to beat this guy. And you've got 62.8 million people that voted for him. And I'm just asking you, please, you want to be upset with me and ridicule me? I can take it. But let's provide an off-ramp for these other people. Let's explain to these other people the risk to the system and the damage that this guy could potentially do over the next four to five years. And let's convince as many of those people as possible to move. Now, you mentioned the 87% number. The WAPO ABC number this morning is now down to 74% for the Republicans. I don't know if you saw that, but that, that just came out. You saw that, right, Tom? So that's very good. Let's get 74 to 54. And let's keep working to get 54 down to 44. He is a systemic danger to the society. We can survive a recession, no problem. It's like a bone break. We've had 12 of them since 1901. What we cannot survive as a society is a tearing of the racial fabric of the society, an annihilation of what we stand for, a divided America. The first name of the country is United. You can't have the leader of the free world and the guy that's sitting in the Oval Office racially charging the society the way he's doing it. You say, well, Anthony, he was doing it three years ago, four years ago. I made a mistake. I'm willing to admit that. I, I, I equivocated. I should not have done that. But let, I did it. And a lot of other people did it, too. I asked Michael Cohen this sorry, question a couple ahead. months before he went to jail. Was there a moment when the flip switched? You know, he said it was when it was the Putin uh, press conference for him. Was there a moment for you where it said, I, I can't do this anymore? OK, so the Putin, so, so I'm blown from the White House unceremoniously, right? brutal. Um, I didn't think it was an appropriate time to break from Trump at that moment, because there I am. I don't want to be that bitter employee. So OK, I'm going to take a highbrow approach to this thing. But I was honest about the Putin press conference. I denunciated that on CNN. You can find tape of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I denunciated the Charlottesville action. That was seven days after I was fired. George Stephanopoulos asked us, this is horrific language. He should not be talking like that. Um, when, he, when, when we saw the women separated from the children in the cages, I spoke out about it. Um, I wrote an op-ed. You can find it in The Hill. The press is not the enemy of the people. I articulated in the op-ed that you can't go after the press. I was trying to heal that situation because the press is the First Amendment for a reason. It's, it's the expression of our freedoms and our individual right. liberty is embedded in that. And what did the founders know about the press? They wanted the press there to hand check the people that were in power. They know that power is a seductive force, and so they want to hold those people accountable. But the other reason, you know this because you're a member of the press, the press also teaches our children to think and speak freely. And a result of that, innovation comes from that, and creativity. And we create Facebook and Google and all these companies like Apple Computer. In autocracies, you're suppressing liberty, and you've got two-thirds of the internet censored in China, and you can't say anything bad about their leadership. You go to some kind of rejuvenation camp or something like that, and they can't think and innovate like we can. And so these are all the reasons why you need free press. Well, like I said, when he started going after the congresswoman, and he said that the four congresswomen, and by the way, I'm a Republican, I would like to beat those women in the free marketplace of ideas. I'd like to have a debate with those women, explain why I think certain policies that they're talking about 
just wouldn't work when you apply them to mm -hmm. real world activity. But I don't want them to go anywhere. They have a right to be here. And he's telling these people to go back to the country they originally came from. Go look at the tweet. Three of them were born here. One is a naturalized citizen. Mm -hmm. All four are democratically elected to the Congress. And by the way, you know, we all have an immigrant story in this room and in, throughout America. My grandmother got here in 1923. She was 18. There were signs in uh, the shops in Brooklyn that said Nina. No Italian need apply. That also said for the Irish. No Irish need apply. And my grandmother was told as a young woman to go back to the country that she came from. And so for me, I said, hey, this is ridiculous. So I'm on the Bill Maher show. I was trying to be polite. I defended certain economic issues. And then uh, Catherine Rampell from the Washington Post said, well, what about the, uh, the women? I said, I can't defend that. I'm sorry. I find that indefensible. That is racist. That is a racist trope. It's a nativist racist trope that's been said for 150 years. He's the leader of the country. He shouldn't be saying that. And so we, we break. We're in the green room. Not as fancy as this place, but we're in a green room. And Bill Maher comes over to me and he says, hey, do you think Trump watched that? And I said, geez, I, I don't know. And my wife was standing there. She said, oh, no, Trump definitely watched that. The two of you together, that would be irresistible for him. He watched it. And then Bill said to me, oh, he's going to light you up tomorrow, meaning me. And I said, why is he going to light me up? I was out there defending him. And he said, well, you didn't defend him on the racist thing, and he's going to light you up. And so that's demagoguery, all right? I was out there seven out of eight for Trump, but Trump wants you 13 out of 10 for him. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I turned to my wife. I said, well, if he lights me up, I'm done. That's full-blown demagoguery. Mm -hmm. So now what does he do, Tom? He lights me up, exactly how Bill predicted, and then he always has to take it one step further. He goes after my wife. Okay, now people in this room may not know this, but I'm happy to share it with you. My wife and I were on the verge of a divorce as a result of me working for Trump. She doesn't like him. So I'm going to work for the White House. She's filing for divorce. Okay, so Trump brings that up in his Twitter feed, and he starts to go after my wife. Do I look like Ted Cruz to you? Okay, I'm not Ted Cruz. You're not going after my wife. Okay, I grew up in a neighborhood that is totally inappropriate, that is ridiculous levels of bullying. And so, you know, come on, man. I'm going to keep punching until he goes through the ropes. Where are the heroes in your party? You know, if John McCain were alive today, I would assume he'd be leading the charge against this president. Cruz, Cruz, who you just said had his wife attacked, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, who said he was unfit to be president during the campaign. When are these people going to actually become heroes of your party? So and, here's the problem. Well, okay, before, before you answer that question, okay, I, yeah, I want to the play problem. the sound of Romney, if we can. Well, there's, there's such enormous power associated with being the party in power, both in the White House as well as in the, in the Senate and the House. And so it's, I think it's very natural for people to, to look at circumstances and see them in the light that's most uh, uh, amenable to their maintaining power hmm. and, and doing things to, to preserve their power. And I think part of that is that both, both parties feel very deeply that if the other party were in charge, that terrible things would happen for the country and for the people, and that it's critical for them to hold on to their leadership so that those awful things that Bernie Sanders is talking about won't come to pass. Okay, so, I mean, that, I think what uh, Governor Rom Senator Romney is talking about, that's a dilemma. Uh, that's a cognitive dissonance dilemma. But I think there's a secondary thing that's probably equally important to that is the ridicule contemporaneous to the bullying. Okay, so let me give you an example. You're Lindsey Graham. You come out tonight, Lindsey Graham hates Trump's guts. Okay, that, I mean, you can just look at the body language. Go look at the Axios uh, thing. 
I mean, he hates Trump. I mean, you can just tell. But he's politically tied to him, and he's got an election coming up, and he wants to stay in power. But you've got two issues going on. If he goes against Trump, he's going to get ridiculed. He'll get the ridicule of the left. The left will say, well, why did you wait so long? Like my 27-year-old sons at Stanford Business School say, Pops, you're, this is a nightmare for me. I said, why is that? Because you're ruining my business career. I said, why is that? He says, well, the Republicans hate your guts. You left Trump. And the Democrats are mad at you because you didn't leave Trump soon enough. And so now everybody hates you. I said, okay, well, maybe I'm getting closer to the truth, AJ. My point is people have a hard time dealing with that level of derision. Secondarily, Trump is a bully. Have you noticed that? So the minute somebody says something bad about him, he goes crazy. You can't be at Fox right now and say something bad about him. Ed Henry asked Mark Levin, the conservative journalist, a question. He said, so, but wasn't the call inappropriate? Or do, what's your opinion? Mark Levin exploded on him, and then Trump sent out 19 vicious bullying tweets about Ed Henry. So, so that's what demagogues do. Okay, he's, He knows people hate his guts. He has very low self-esteem. He's got like the self-esteem of a small pigeon. But then how do, you, so, get, how do you get around that then? So how do you get around you, that this, within the Republican you Party? You have to lead it. You have to lead it. You have to get out but there. But to Tom's you point, to, who? You have to take, well, well right That's now, what I'm surprised about with Governor Romney, frankly, or Senator Romney, is he came out, Trump hit him a few <clears> times, and he's gone back in a little bit. Right. He's not out there. He's not out of point. And so what happened there is a combination of things. The people in the caucus told him to get back in line, and then they yelled at Trump and told him to stop tweeting against Romney, and everybody's got to get back in line, and we've got to form a phalanx of defense against this lunatic, but I think it's going to break down, because unfortunately, the message for the future and for the present is that we have a group of self-preservationists in the Republican Party, we have a group of politically expedient people in the Republican Party. And we have nobody ready to rise to the level of patriotism required. And so what's going to have to happen now, we're going to have to beat their brains in. We're going to have to get that 38%, the 28%, to 18%, and then they'll cut and run from the guy, because that's what they'll do. See, because here's what depresses me, right? And I, I don't mean to speak for the Republican Party, you know, God forbid. But here's what depresses me. You take someone like Congressman Hurd, right? Good man, good patriot. He's not running for re-election. He doesn't even vote for an inquiry based on all the information that's there. What the hell is that all about? Like, why not an inquiry? He's, he's locked into the system. Okay. But he's retiring from the system. No, but he's going to lobby the system. He's going to work at a law firm. He's going to give public speeches. He's but if, he, get, but if, we can't, if, we, if we can't invest our hope into a Republican like you, that, then who can we invest our hope well, into on the Republican that's a, side? That's, that's a really good question. And so as of right now, I don't have a really good answer for you. Well, that's comforting. So we, but, but we have to beat the brains in. But what about I mean, like John Kasich? Like, what's holding him back so, from running so against So I think, I think Kasich looks at the situation and says it's unwinnable. It's at 74%. Trump has a water wall of money. He's got all the data. He's got the party locked in this demagogic cult around him, and he thinks it's unwinnable. But, you know, I don't think that way. I think Trump is a paper tiger. I think of a few established Republicans. Um, and what I say to people is, if you're a 2024 Republican, how are you going to stand on that stage in 2024? You're going to say that I whistled past the Trump graveyard of lawlessness and illegality because I was afraid of the guy, but now I'm here, standing here, ready to be your president? I mean, one of the things you need to be president, I think, is some level of fearlessness Absolutely. in your personality. And so what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I want to say that Trump's terrible. 
I just couldn't say that to you in 2020. It's now here in 2024. Now, this happened during the McCarthy era. Yep. And Eisenhower wrote in his memoirs that the biggest mistake he made in his political career, biggest mistake, was that he didn't denounce him. He got to the podium. He had the speech in his hand ready to denounce Joe McCarthy, but he was in Wisconsin. He needed to win the state. He didn't denounce McCarthy. And McCarthyism burnt out after four and a half years. Okay. Where's Margaret but, B. Chase? You know, she is, remember her? But there was she a was senator who stood yeah, up to Margaret McCarthy. B. Chase. But also Joe Walsh, who said, you know, have you no shame? Yeah. Joe Walsh said, have you no <laughs> shame? And then, uh, obviously, Margaret B. Chase right. said it. She was the first one. She was the Republican from mm -hmm. Maine. Mm -hmm. He bounced her from the committee she was on, and Richard Nixon took her place. Right. And so, what do we know? We know that these things are expedient. John Kennedy wrote three books. Right? He wrote Profiles and Courage. Yeah, but he wrote When England Slept. He wrote A Nation of Immigrants about America, and he wrote Profiles and Courage. And he said, you know, Profiles and Courage, that was my thinnest book. You know why? There's no courage out there, okay? I couldn't find people in the Congress that were willing to break from their party and willing to step into the void, into that vacuum, and take derision from both sides. I couldn't find it. And so, so to me, like I said in August, and I'm saying here in the beginning of November, you're depressing the hell out of me, well, Anthony. No, I, I thought this was going to be an exciting episode well, here with well, like a hope and hope. I don't feel any hope here. Well, I, I don't think I'm depressing you. We've I'm very you. depressed. Well, Charlie, you got to wake up. We, we, I'm, a, we, I'm wide awake. We, I just we, I feel like the egg cracked. is in. I feel like no, we're rubbing we, the egg. Maybe I don't no, know that we're no, cracking. No, no, We went from 94 to 87 to 74. He's got a 38 percent approval rating. 48% of the American people want them impeached and removed. The independent number 48%. is 48%. The independent number is 48%. That's grown. We're, we're, we're knocking this guy out. Yeah, this guy's, see, here's not, my gonna thing. Be, here's this my guy's thing. not gonna be president in two years. No, my thing is is that there are still a whole bunch of Anthony Scaramucci's who still support this guy and believe, and actually believe in him. My problem isn't I don't have I don't okay. I'm not criticizing it's you for being country. late. No, I know. But I think there are still people who genuinely believe in his candidates. They would rather support him for re-election than not. And okay. that's what troubles me. Uh, it troubles me because we don't understand it. We Democrats don't understand it. And I don't know that you can convince them that, that, that Trump is not, that Trump is a bad president. And that's, okay. that's well, what I, that's well, what I'm me, having difficulty well, in. Let that's what I'm. That's what I'm having you, difficulty. You want to give everybody hope. Let's 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 try to get you. You guys are moving so far to the left. Okay. We. we you know, well, you, you need gotta, to explain. You, you need gotta, to explain you that to people. Warren, Twenty trillion dollars and new Why spending. is that? So, why is that so worrisome to people like you? So that we people can understand. That. Well, it's very simple. It's worrisome because you're going to disincentivize people. You're going to invent an imaginary system that has never worked in human history. And if you slouch towards socialism, what, what will end up happening is you'll break the system. In any country that's done that, you end up with even more elites at the tippy top and less people that are super aspirational and super successful. A wealth tax has never worked anywhere. It didn't work in France, didn't work in the UK, would not work here. People will immobilize their capital. My capital's not in a uh, swimming pool in my backyard and $100 bills. My capital is deployed in these businesses and it's employing people. And if you're going to tax me like that, I can't give it to new businesses. I can't help uh, venture capitalists create new economic innovation. And so if you guys want to do that, you're also disincentivizing it. Let's say I made a dollar. I got, and I got even, taxed. I got even a tougher question for you. Go ahead. Who, but do I mean, you th 
who do you think is a better president for your mother and father, Elizabeth Warren or Trump? That's a tough question, right? To a you, better president for my mother and father. Well, let me let me say this, okay? <laughs> Uh, it's and tough, people right? in the tough. Republican Party are not going to like this. This is my observation from the campaign trail. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. The, the Trump supporters are socially conservative and they're fiscally liberal. Don't okay? split the okay. baby here. No, no, I'm no, not going to let, don't, don't no, let parse me, this like, I'm oh, not, well, you know, we're going to do the no, socially not, liberal thing for Warren, but we're going to. You're not, you're, right, not, you're, not, you're not paying just, attention. This okay, is important because everybody closely. thinks they're conservatives. They're not conservatives. They hold signs up at the Tea Party. And they say, take your government hands off my Medicare. Right. And you're right. like, wait a minute, that's a government program. They don't even know. Okay, so Trump did something, whether you may like it or not like it, he's got very good political instincts. He never touched any of those programs, nor will he ever, because he understands his base is social conservative and fiscally liberal. So the answer to the question is that, that my parents would be indifferent from a social policy perspective between those two people because Trump won't touch that. He's spending like a maniac. But you were just saying socialism doesn't work. We have Medicare, we have unemployment insurance, we've got, you know, so many different programs, Wait, no, no, Social Security. I said, I, I said I'm indifferent to those two. I think my parents would so be... So you punted? I didn't oh. punt. I didn't punt. They're, uh, either one of those people are going to keep those programs in place. So they would, I'm not so, punting. So you're saying both of them would Elizabeth be Elizabeth Warren... If Trump survives, I want to say one or the other. Who would they okay. vote for? I, Who would you? Uh, if you had to vote well, for parents, one or the other, if you went in there, you my, wouldn't. My say, parents are not voting for Trump, so they would vote for Elizabeth. Well, that's because it's personal. What I'm saying, yeah, my parents wouldn't vote for Trump. Uh, yeah, right, what am I going to do? I'm telling, asking you the question. Let the record reflect. I'm he punted on a very tough question. I, I, said I just said Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yeah, but that's because it's personal. I said objectively speaking. All right, we'll let you. We'll let you pass. So we want I'm you, asking the questions honestly. Let's go. Go ahead, Tom. You guys. No, but Abe Lincoln was the first socialist in this country because he was fighting for for the Civil War, for the, uh, the uh, veterans. This is, a, this is a country that has de democratic socialism for going back 200 years. It's a democratically socialist country. Elizabeth Warren's not a socialist. She's talking about um, free markets that work for everybody. She's not well, saying okay, to socialize so, the... So explain the wealth tax then. So let me just give an example to people. I've made a dollar. You tax me at 50 cents. You know, in our case here in New York, it's 54. How is I'm that different than property taxes? How is wealth tax different than property taxes? Well, it's very different. It's based on the based on the on how wealth how how much no, wealth you have in your home. It's very different because uh, wealth tax is conjoined to savings and it's conjoined to behavior. Property taxes, people can buy into it because it's based on the value of your home. It, it really isn't, though. Go through the different property tax legislation throughout it's, the country. It's supposed to be it, it, tied it's to supposed the... To be, but we both know that it isn't. But we also can explain the property tax on, on housing as it relates to infrastructure and education. But now we got a wealth tax. You're going to disincentivize people. I've made a dollar. I'm in New York. I only get to keep 46 cents. I'm a minority partner in my own life. You know, Bill de Blasio is my majority partner. Okay, I'm a minority partner in my own life. My 46 cents, I decide to save. I spend 10 cents of it, I keep 36 cents, and I grow it into $10. And so through my good behavior, I'm protecting my children and my family, now you want to come in and clip me for Above that. $50 million, you no, saying. You see, isn't you isn't what $50 million enough for you to no, you live see, your whole that's life? That's how a socialist thinks. So here's what happens, okay? Again, my money's not in a swimming pool in my backyard. Just say, well, it's $50 million, it's $10 million. What's the big deal? What happens is you constrict the arterial flow 
of capital formation in the country. Most people in America can't spend $50 million in their whole lives. Tom, 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 here's the, here's the danger of the way you're describing it, okay? Most people don't have the money. They say, well, you got plenty of money. Why do you need more money? It's not about me needing more money, okay? Believe me, I live in a modest house on Long Island. I got plenty of money. It's not that I need the money. I'm talking about incentives, and I'm talking about the way human beings operate in the social order. You're describing something normative. You're describing something as the way it ought to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to tell you the way it is for people. And they make decisions, and they will start mobilizing their capital away from economic innovation. They'll move it offshore. They'll hide it from you. They'll download it to their siblings and to their children to get below the $50 million, and you'll corrupt the system. But if we had a beefed-up IRS that could go after those things, it could, okay. it could, it could, it could follow okay. the money. Okay, okay. You're, you're going to cripple the system. There's 150 years of data to suggest that what I'm saying will cripple the system. You would be better off giving a higher earned income tax credit. Is the credit. system working now? You'd be better is the system off. working this No, the system now? is completely broken. So, so let's you- talk about how to fix the system because I believe the system needs a safety net. I believe that you need an energetic government right. and you need a government to step in to help solve people's problems and to help equalize the opportunity in a society. And equalize the opportunity, not equalize the outcome time. Absolutely. No, You're coming no. from this angle. I want to come from this angle. I want to equalize Elizabeth the opportunity. Warren saying, keep your $50 million. We're not touching that. Well, you can't possibly spend that your whole life. Tom, we want two cents Tom, above 50 million. That's the socialist dogma. So when you take the two but cents But you can't above, just label these things. It's because, well, again, she, 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 but she says, I'm, I'm not, not a socialist. She's a capitalist. It's not even that. Okay, let me tell you something. You're going to go tax. Let's say I got the 50. You're going to go tax me. You're going to take a million dollars from me. I'm going to go to my account and say, okay, give to my three kids. Now they got 16 million each. Okay, and now you can't tax me. You, you, you think I'm going to give you the money? I'm not going to give you the money, Tom. I earned the money. I saved. You taxed me 54%. I saved. I invested it wisely. I got it to 50. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm not giving you the money, Tom. I'm sorry. I'm not giving it to you. You mad at me for not giving it to you? That's how the society works. That's how the civilization works. Okay, I'm going to hand you $50 million tomorrow. We'll see how quickly you'll be calling your attorney to get rid of the thing. You I'll won't. happily pay taxes on that. Okay. So, all right. All right. I want to turn to <laughs> You're not going to do it, though. Because, know, let me tell you so. Everybody says that with great righteousness and great sanctimony until they're in the situation. Okay. Same thing with me. Okay. I got seduced by Trump. I got seduced by the idea of working inside Washington. And by the way, I am not a righteous, sanctimonious guy to tell you that I didn't get seduced by that. And everybody in this room... They may think they're morally superior than me, and maybe they are, but they may not be in the same the circumstances and the same the situation. Socialists are. They're not, though. The no, socialists, they, no, they the socialists are the most, it's like limousine liberals. They think they're, no, the socialists You want to talk about how to fix it? Because we can fix it, okay? And we can fix it together. How do you got to fix it? You have to reform the educational system. Totally. In the country. No, that, that really have to reform it. The K through 12 educational system is too uneven. It's all about it's teachers. It's all about it's teachers. It's very unfair in poor communities. We have to fix it. We have to have the will and a 10 or 25 year plan to fix it. We need technical job training. It's not a two minute fix. It's a 10 to 25 year fix. We had an infrastructure plan that would have worked. Mm-hmm. We could have repatriated $500 billion of capital from off the shore of the United States for companies like Apple and Google that would have been happy to do it right. if they had a tax incentive to do it. We could have put it in an infrastructure bank, borrowed 10 to 1 on it, and had $5 trillion to deploy in infrastructure. We could have done that. Uh, you may not agree with Trump on this, but I, I do see this point. We have to reduce our military footprint around the world. Mm-hmm. It's draining too much resources from I, the United I, States. I, I agree. We have to invest it back in the United States. Those things 
you can still leave a free market system with a safety net. You're calling it democratic socialism. I'm calling it a free market-based system which aligns human behavior with the appropriate incentives but also provides a safety net and gives a level of promise to younger people that didn't pick their family of birth. They didn't pick their skin color. They didn't pick their sexual preference. But they've now, no matter where they were born, in a manor house or they were born in a minion house, they have an opportunity to express themselves and actualize their American dream. You're, 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 you're asking people to do something that's antithetical to they're, them. They're not mutually exclusive. I, 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 okay. I agree I, with I, that. I, 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 increase, gonna, improving gonna, education is apple pie. I'm to turn to, uh, <clears throat> you've been looking at candidates to, to, to take on Trump in the real world. We're now yeah. going to go to our fantasy candidates that okay. involve well, Trump, obviously, Ronald Reagan, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Condoleezza Rice, and Sarah Palin. But right. let's first hear from Tony Fabrizio in episode two to tell you what He's he had pollster, to say. Right? He's the pollster, yeah, yeah. so yeah. let's hear what he had to say. Not even close, Donald Trump. You look at what every one of those other people are known for, they are completely out of step with the modern-day Republican Party. And I'm a huge Reagan fan. The Republican Party today is fundamentally different. The one that comes closest is Sarah Palin, and she's not even close. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, forget it. <laughs> Dave Lincoln, I mean, yeah, you know, we, they, he may get points for, you know, for his, you know, embrace of civil liberties and all the rest of it. But the fact of the matter is, on the issues that matter today to Republicans, he'd be out of step. So. What struck me about what Fabrizio said was two things. One is that is that Reagan would get destroyed by Donald Trump today, and two that Abraham Lincoln would get destroyed. Okay, so I disagree with both of those things because I think what have to remember what happens to people is they look at data and they think linearly, and then they fail to make that exponential leap. Okay, and you have to take yourself out of that prism. You have to recognize that both Reagan and Lincoln were adaptive politicians. Okay, Reagan failed in 68 to get the nomination. He came close in 76, failed again, and he retweaked and retorked himself and won the nomination in 1980, and he shifted with the political zeitgeist and he caught the wind right to win the nomination. Reagan had the skill set to do that. He was also very amiable, and he had a high likability quotient. Mm -hmm. Trump does not have a high likability quotient. Trump is a complete asshole. And people that voted for him said, okay, I want to shake up Washington. Let's hire a complete asshole. Okay, but down deep, they don't really like Trump. Axios said 69% of the people in America dislike Trump. So Reagan could beat the pants off of Trump, okay? I don't know Abraham Lincoln. I wasn't alive when he was around, although I'm getting up there. Keith, but I would Keith say, Wright was, so we Keith, could ask Keith, <laughs> Keith, but I, what I would say about Abe Lincoln is that he would have a hard time, not due to his ideology, people are going to be mad at me for saying this, but he'd have a hard time because of the way he looks. In the aesthetic world today, and in the entertainment world today, people want to be entertained by their politicians. Okay, Trump understood that, Reagan understood that, John Kennedy understood that, and in the age of television, when you're entering the living rooms of the people, every night you're coming into the living room, one way or another, Trump's coming in too much, he's exhausting people, but you're in the living room with them, they want to have a likability about you, okay? Whatever you want to say about Barack Obama, he had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Yep. Okay, and so Reagan could beat the pants off of Trump. Beat the pants off. Now, what, what Tony's trying to say, well, their policies are different, and Reagan is more of a centrist now compared to what Trump is doing, and, but, but I think it's a personality call. 
And I think he is the wicked witch of the West. He's the green witch. He's the wicked witch of the West Wing. And so what happens is you throw some water on this guy, and he starts melting. Remember what the, the guards did? Mm -hmm. They turned to Dorothy and said, hey, man, I'm sorry, Dorothy. Once that perceived power and that spell breaks and he melts, those people are going to change up. And when they change up, that party's going to change up with them. Now, what do you think about it? I think, I think Reagan beats the pants. You think, what about a third? Honest Abe, man, there's not enough makeup and hairspray. I don't, I don't think <laughs> he'd make it. Wait, say this about hairspray? I got a ton of it in there. I know. <laughs> Also, I got a great colorist if you want to do something with the snow. No, I like it. I can fix it. I like this. This is, this is Latin American dictator brown, in case you're looking at it. If you like going through the bottles. And I, you know, I was sure. using Cuban leader black. It looked like shit on television, so I had to lighten it up a little bit. Yeah, I changed it. Well, we can talk about that offline. How about Trump orange? Um, yeah, Trump orange, man. I don't even, that's the crazy stuff. Yeah, I use that for be, Halloween. That'll never be a the, um, uh, so, what about a third party? Would you support a third party candidacy? Um, you know, I would support a third party candidacy the way somebody like John Kasich should be entering yes. the race to primary Trump. It's quixotic, it's unlikely to work. One of the things that these two parties did after the 92 election, when Ross Perot got 19.9% of the vote, is they solidified their duopoly. They made it very, very hard for a third party to even get on the ballot in certain states. And look at what Trump's party is doing to his fellow Republicans. They're being restricted in Minnesota. They dropped the South Carolina primary. Uh, and so what, what they're doing is you're seeing the full visage of their elements of autocracy. Okay, and what's happened is part of their business model is to get you to hate them. The more you hate them, the more you'll disaffect from them, and the more apathetic you become and the less you'll vote. That's very good for them, because they want the fat tails of the extremes to control the process so that they can stay permanently in power. You want to hear my whole scenario? Sure. Trump's gone. Pence is the guardian president for a period of six months, uh, and he, he basically says he's not going to run. He's been crippled by Trump, and they open it up to a primary process, and they have a shortened primary season. And then those 2024 candidates will roll themselves, they'll push themselves into the 2020 zone. But the question for every one of those people, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? What standing are you going to have in the Western civilization whistling past the graveyard of Trump. What are you doing right now? Who in that, what are you who in that group emerges? I mean, I would think the potential candidates would be people like Nikki Haley. I would have said Mike Pompeo, but I think he's been heavily damaged by Trump. I would say uh, somebody like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, Charlie Baker, the uh, Republican mm -hmm. uh, who's, who's bridged the gap up in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. I mean, but here's another problem. You need name recognition to run the yes, president. Yes. You need that more than everything else because it's an entertainment business. Mm -hmm. People want to see the TV. They want to see the fireworks. And you need name recognition. Okay. So um, I heard a rumor that you're going to run for mayor of New York City. Any truth that? I don't know. I don't know if I can get elected. You think I get elected? What party are you running in? I don't tell me what party I need to run in. You have to run as a Democrat, right? Or an independent, yeah. Well, first of all, I don't live in New York City. I live on Long Island, so that, that, this, that, that's disqualified. That could easily be fixed. But, but you know, yeah. uh, you know, you have here, name recognition. Here's what Take my, some of that fifty million dollars well, and buy buy a place on Fifth Avenue. Well, I'm certainly not giving it to Elizabeth Warren. Let's just put it that way. But here's what you know, Mike Bloomberg said to me that it was the most fun job that yeah. he ever had in his life. Okay, so. Is that a job that would interest somebody like me? Yes. I'm not going to. I'm not a politician. I'm not going to bullshit you and say it doesn't interest me. But you know, I, I I think I've got some Trump taint on me to be candid. 
Um, I'm, a, I'm a social progressive. Anybody that's followed me around knows that I was for gay marriage 10 years ago. I supported those Republican senators to vote for gay marriage. I worked with Rob Reiner and Chad Griffin on the human rights campaign to support the national gay marriage movement. So I'm, I'm the opposite of the Trump supporter in a weird way. I'm socially liberal. I'm just a little bit more fiscally centrist or more fiscally conservative. But so could, I don't, I don't you, see a you, path for me. Unless but, you, but, if you said to me, but if you said to me there was a Bloomberg lane and there was a path and you could convince my wife, I mean, you know, would I be open to something like that? Yeah, but right now I'm running for re-election in my marriage, okay? <laughs> Unfortunately for me, they're like one-day terms, so I'm on the campaign trail every day. When so I ran mine, I don't know. I have to see what happens. <laughs> right. You know, my wife is ready to kill me and divorce me, so if I tell her I'm running for mayor, I mean, castration is permanent, right? Everybody knows that, right? <laughs> Circumcision, you can sort of survive. You already but, had five kids. Yeah, well, that's, something, that's something she would say, Tom. So, but castration is permanent. I would like to try to avoid that. All right, well, listen, I thank you very much for coming. Hope you yeah, uh, come back you. again. Pleasure really. to be Let's here. give a round of applause. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Big Shot. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard and want to see how this year's Big Shot fantasy race unfolds, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. To learn more about all of our fantasy candidates, visit the official Big Shot website at bigshot-podcast.com. Thanks to contributing editor Greg Drilling, editor Caroline King, and contributors Marissa Kosha, Jack Bavacqua, and Kimberly Winston for making this podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor Frank Carone for sponsoring this entire podcast season. Thank you to our special guest, Anthony Scaramucci. And thank you to our special co-host, Tom Allen. And anybody who wants to learn anything about New York politics, city or state, should read City and State to learn everything there is to know about politics here in New York. Thank you to Jody Durst, Jordan Barowitz, and the entire Durst organization for use of the green, an amazing space in Manhattan's 151 building. And thank you to Mercury Public Affairs, a high-stakes public relations firm with offices across the country and around the world. This is your host, Charlie King. See you next time.